Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Uh, during my brief break, I had a nice meal and then um, also took my son uh, to the beach because no person from San Diego was there. Uh, you guys all, but to us in Oregon, we're like 55. It's warm. Let's go. My son was like in the water, like, yeah. We're made of different things. We're not as handsome as you guys are. We look more like a cross of like Machine Gun Kelly and Gollum. Um, because we hide in the clouds and we tattoo ourselves. I don't tattoo myself, but, uh, but you know, we're stronger, I think. I think we're stronger in the elements. And so um, my son proved that today. Um, and enjoyed it. But it's so fun to be here, and what an encouraging turnout for the House of Learning, and um, just as like a plug for your church and, and the future in the next couple of months for you guys, um, I, I would so encourage you to dedicate yourself. Just go, I'm going to go to every House of Learning this year, you know, just to, just to say I'm in because there's a different level of attention we can give some of the subjects um, in, in, a, in a longer format, and there's also a discussion that I think is really valuable to just making some of the things we're gonna think about uh, come to life in your life. And so, um, yeah, our faith is an exercise of our heart, our soul, and our mind. And this environment is a special place. And just my experience as a pastor has been, there's only so much you can do in a sermon. And there's only so much you can receive from a sermon. Sermons are amazing. I've spent so much of my life preaching them. But there's something that additionally can happen in an environment like this that I think God's spirit is, is, is inviting us into today. And so um, that's my plug for a thing I, I, I will probably, this will be my only one I go to, but I'm telling you, go to all of them. Uh, what a gift that your church does this. It's amazing. So, um, hey, let me pray. Uh, I know Evan has prayed, but I just want to pray uh, for our time as, as I talk here and, and, and make sure we're in line with the spirit. So let's take just a moment, take a, take a breath. Heavenly Father, we recognize the presence and power of your son Jesus through his Holy Spirit right here. And we actually turn our attention from our friends and our meal to you and just rem we remind ourselves here in this prayerful moment, you are so near. You actually, through the power of your spirit, dwell in those of us that confess you, Jesus Christ. You're here. We're asking you to speak and we're asking you to also give us the ability to hear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen? Amen. Hey, I want to start with this picture. Um, the next slide, the backdrop is the picture, but the next slide has the picture um, as it is. This uh, is a painting from the 1500s, uh, mid-1500s. I assume most of you don't spend most of your time looking at paintings from the 1500s, which is why I'm here, to show you old art. Um, this is a picture called the Tower of Babel. How many of you are familiar with this Bible story from Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel? It was painted by a man named Peter Bruegel, the elder, who was a Dutch Renaissance painter. So think about Dutch, think about the Renaissance, okay? So this is a long, long time ago. This is actually probably, they think, around the time of the Reformation. So the church is in great upheaval. Uh, the Catholic Church is, the Protestant movement is beginning to protest the protestants were uh, protesters against some of the ways of the church and bruegel had just spent time in rome 
He was a Dutch guy, so he had spent time in Rome, and he had seen the Colosseum. And the Colosseum, has anybody been to Rome and seen the Colosseum? I've been privileged to see it. It's really cool. Magnificent piece of history and architecture. And he had been there in the 1500s. And just to let you know, it was not intact in the 1500s. I know our concept of history might be a little different, but in the 1500s, it was seriously decaying. And he was in this time uh, in Europe where there was a renaissance. There was tons of new art and tons of new culture building and tons of political advancements, technological advancements through the printing press. Uh, tons and tons of humanitarian efforts that were coming into fruition during a very key time in history. And Bruegel came from Rome back to his home and he may have needed to refresh his memory on what he saw in Rome, and so he began to paint. He was a painter, and he began to paint this piece because as he was walking and journeying from Rome back to the Dutch land, he was considering the what can happen to those that focus entirely on culture building. How fruitful is it? How fruitful is it to cash in all of our chips on making a great world, making a great nation. And his reflection was, you know, his whole life he thought Rome was the greatest advancement of human empires to ever exist. And he's like, I just saw its ashes. I just saw its broken buildings. And he painted this. And this is, the title is the Tower of Babel, but you'll notice in the tower is a fragment of the Colosseum, of the Roman Colosseum. And, you know, the commentary you might say on this, you might receive other kind of, you know, insights to this picture. That art is a subjective thing that we can kind of look at and make guesses at. But when you look at this, you see kind of the sad reality of culture making and culture building when it's done towards human efforts. If you know the Tower of Babel story, the Tower of Babel story is about the achievements humans can make and the limitations of it. And the parallel of Rome uh, to Babel, which was the beginning of Babylon, by the way, Rome and Babylon, it had particular significance for the contemporaries in the 1500s. Rome was called the eternal city. Did you know that? It was called the eternal city. It still is today. And when Peter Bruegel saw that it had been completely decimated, it was intended for the Caesars to last forever and live here and be buried here. But its decay and ruin was taken as a way to symbolize like the vanity and the transience of earthly efforts, right? The tower of Babel was also, it was symbolic of like religious turmoil um, that was happening in the Catholic Church at the time. And the way that the Protestant movement was kind of critiquing this in the Netherlands. All right, why am I show showing you old art? Well, this picture, oh, and by the way, see in the corner here, this king, this royal king, he might be the one who's like constructing this whole project. You see these peasants are on the outside of the city and they have hammers and nails and like uh, stonemasonry uh, things that they're building with almost to make this critique of like, man, even the people who build these very empires never receive its benefits. And what was true for Babel, Bruegel, who's this artist, was saying, what was true for Babel was true for Rome, which could be true in the Catholic Church in his contemporary moment, which could be true today. 
When you think about the limitations of making culture and of obsessing over the things that the world is built over. Let's go to the next slide. In the contrast between Babel and the kingdom of God, it's kind of what we're going to look at tonight um, in a few ways. Babel, if you look at Genesis 11, these are quotes from Babel. They say, let us build ourselves a city. Let's do something great. And Jesus says, I will build my church. You know that scripture? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build it. I'm going to send you as missionaries and witnesses, but I will build my church. Um, You know, a lot of us maybe talk about building the kingdom, but building the kingdom is uh, not going to be found in your New Testament. The kingdom is arriving. The kingdom is growing. The kingdom is uh, here, Jesus says. It's in your midst. It's breaking in. Um, You don't got to, you know, create it. It's already been created. Let us make a name for ourselves as Babel. And, ba- and Jesus says, lose your life. Don't make a name for yourself. <laughs> uh, Babel says, we're doing this to preserve something, lest we be dispersed. And Jesus is like, disperse. Go into all the world. Go into all the world and make my name known and make my kingdom known. Don't worry about your life. Lose it for my sake and go into the world to proclaim it. I'm setting up this problem because when we talk about ideologies and we dive a little deeper here tonight in our, in our time... Um, I think one of the the reasons we are tempted towards ideologies is because they give us the Babylonian promise. Um, Conservative ideology, progressive ideology, whatever ideology you might be more swayed to, each of us kind of leans a little bit based on our family of origin, how we grew up. We're maybe a little bit more progressive or we're a little bit more conservative just in our makeup and who we are. Our proclivity towards buying into earthly ideologies and towards political philosophies and nation building and things like that is usually Babylonian temptations. It's usually oriented around preservation. We don't want to be dispersed. It's usually around making a name for ourselves or our group. And and by the way, I, I told you Christians do this to try to make a name for Christianity or for the sake of, of Jesus, but it, it's as if Jesus needed support. We're going to look at that in a little bit. Um, and, and like, let's build it. Let's do it. Instead of asking the question, what is God doing in this world? What is he up to? And how can we be a part of it? Let me set up the problem in another way that doesn't involve 16th century art. All right, next slide. Um, we're in some time where people talk about culture wars, which is the battle for influence and power over the general operations of society, politics, education, art, broad customs of a nation, group, or people, okay? So culture warring is kind of expressed in left versus right, this ideological spectrum, like left versus right, progressive versus liberal, like are we antagonistic and like against the government or are we a true patriot? And it it exposes these extremes of ideologies And basically, the way in which we're trying to uh, work these ideologies is so that we might gain influence and power over people. Now, the question becomes, is this a Christian way of thinking? Is this a mindset to which followers of Jesus should adhere to? Because a question we should ask tonight is, should Christians engage in this kind of warring, in this kind of battling? Um, that's a good question to ask because often we don't ask the question if we're to fight the war, we're just like, we just got to pick a side. So we'll pick this side or we'll pick that side. 
and we'll just go and pick it because we got to be involved in this fight. And the question I want to ask is, do we have to be involved in this fight? It, it's a true question. Is this really the battle that scripture talks about when scripture uses warfare language? Um, so look at some of these uh, next couple slides here. Um, I think that our general, <laughs> these, are my <laughs> these are my funny, let's all be light about this, all right? Let's not get too serious. Let's not take ourselves too seriously. Um, the spectrum from the left is to be woke and to the right is make America great again. And Christianity has had a really hard time navigating this polarization, okay? And so the, the, uh, the brightest minds of Christianity, and some of them are our brothers and sisters, and maybe this is some of you, and I want to just talk about this tonight. Maybe you talk about it in your groups, but the solutions for the church through the last number of years have been increasingly this. Okay, next slide. One option is to throw into the left and to become progressive Christianity, you know? And so to be Christian is to be on that far side of the spectrum ideologically where you pretty much inhabit the entire, again, when I say ideologies, by the way, in my book, I define them as sets of ideas that have been enculturated through politics, okay? They're sets, so they, they're, it's like when you go to Costco and you buy in bulk, it's like you're buying ideas in bulk. Like they all come in one package. So it's like Aziz Ansari has this great joke in his latest special on Netflix where he's like, a lot of you, if you just tell me your opinion about one thing, I know the rest of your opinions about everything else. You tell me about abortion, I know what you think about same-sex marriage. Like, just tell me, because you're so packaged in these ideologies. You understand? Okay. So, Christianity has been like, well, Jesus was all about all these things. So, we'll just cash in on this, right? The other option is Christians have gone all the way to the right, right? And we call this sometimes Christian nationalism and defenses of Christian nationalism. And then there's even a third approach that some maybe have talked about, which is the third way. Like, okay, we're going to take a little bit of the left and a little bit of the right, and we're going to take these ideas and smash them together into this third way to where we eventually might create this other political party or this other thing that we will do because really Jesus was about justice and he was about, you know, um, a sexual ethic or whatever. Like, so we try to put those things together to create a third way. What I want to suggest tonight is that Christianity, in the next slide, actually sits above the spectrum of ideologies. That it actually doesn't exist in the same universe, <laughs> in the same dimension. And that this way of thinking has implications for how you live your life and how you relate to communities. And this is what we're talking about tonight, which is the adopting the mind of Jesus Christ. The mind of Jesus Christ. That in some way, Christianity is... And this might be offensive to some of you who are maybe not Christians, but I truly believe Scripture presents, and again, we talked about this this morning, Christianity is the person of Jesus, the event of the resurrection, crucif crucifixion and resurrection. The New Testament presents that message as superior to anything the world has ever imagined. It's very comfortable with superiority. Maybe you are not. Um, I certainly wasn't when I became a Christian. When I became a Christian, it took me a lot of time to understand the exclusive superior claims of the Bible and to really explore those. That might be why you need to go to Alpha or something like that to look into that a little bit more. That's too much for us to tackle tonight. But it is true for us to say 
that Christianity makes shocking claims about Jesus and about how superior he really is. And in this world that's trying to tell us to take one of the sides or create a middle ground or even ignore ideologies in general, that's not what I'm suggesting, but some people just say, just ignore politics and ignore ideologies. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's a mind in which we can adopt from Jesus Christ that helps us engage with that spectrum of ideologies with wisdom. Okay, are you with me? How are we doing? House of Learning, you just ate Chipotle. Are you falling asleep? Are we good? Okay. All right. How do we have the mind of Christ in this world? Um, there's a professor out at Duke where I'm doing doctoral work right now named Kevin Rowe, and he says this, one of the biggest issues in our world today is millions of people assuming they know what Christianity actually is. He said this, to those of us that were in his doctoral seminar. We're all pastors. We've been to seminary. <laughs> He's like, a huge problem with you guys is you think you know what Christianity is. And he's, he has this great concept called Christianity's surprise, where he says, as Christians, we should constant, constantly be in awe of the gospel and going back to its simplicity in reminding us of how powerful it is. And using the gospel over and over again, going back to the gospel, going back to Jesus, going back to the cross, the mark of maturity is not the ascension to good, better, better spiritual ideas. It's about the descent into the heart of the cross, into going, what does it look like to die? What does it look like to die so that I might live? What does it look like to be a citizen of this kingdom where the poor are blessed and the blessed are those who mourn and blessed are those who persecuted? Jesus said that. So what does that really look like? That's what Christianity's surprise is. And I've found a couple of sources in interpreting a couple scriptures we're going to look at that are, have been too help, so, so helpful that I want you to think about. I think lost in our ideological battles in America is a loss of retrieval, theological retrieval, from two important communities, the historic church and the global church. That when we read our scriptures, because see, on the ideological battlefield we all have bible verses okay everybody on the far left can quote bible everybody on the far right can quote bible it's about interpreting scripture correctly and one way i've found in correcting some of those ideological ideologically baptized forms of christianity is i'm like let's look to two areas of our brothers and sisters who have interpreted scripture very faithfully the historic church what has transcended time who, what was Irenaeus saying about 1 Corinthians 1 in the year 210? Has that lasted? Because if that lasts, that might have something to say to our culture today. Because we're so stuck in time. It's like, we might be in the illusion of our modern moment, you know? Just as a newsflash, how many of you have children? Okay, I have a child, right? he will be embarrassed by a lot of my opinions in about 15 years, okay? Just like that. The opinions that I think are very current and good, in about 50, give it 15 years, give it 20 years, they'll seem foolish to our children and grandchildren. Uh, Christianity offers a great resource. What has lasted? What has lasted? And, um, and then secondly, the, the global church, which is what has transcended... Um, 
Oh, I actually switched these. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Oops. Edit. The global church is what has transcended culture. The historic church is what has transcended time. That's my bad. The global church, then, what has transcended culture? I said today, if you drop the gospel in America, it offends individualism, greed, sexual ethic are probably the top three, and then other things down the line. It offends that part of our culture. But preach the gospel in Asia and preach the gospel in Africa, as our brothers and sisters in those countries are doing. And it will offend different parts of that culture. So, because the problem we become is when we say, oh, this part of the gospel is offending this part of the culture, so maybe we should shrink back on this Christian teaching. But you see, when we listen to our brothers and sisters in the global south, we actually learn a better interpretation of scripture to try to generate what transcends cultures, right? That at some level, our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and in Africa and in Asia, particularly the global south, where two-thirds of our world lives and where most Christians live, by the way, uh, just as, as, as a newsflash, right? Most Christians live there. Um, they have something to share with us. And so um, I want to share with you tonight a habit of mind, four ways of thinking to keep your mind in the mind of Christ. Now, this is important to say, if you came tonight to the House of Learning and you're like, I want practical ideas for how to think about politics or something. You're not going to get that tonight. I don't think that Christianity gives us all that super cleanly sometimes. Here's what I think our faith gives us. Um, habits of mind. Habits of mind. Ways to think. Ways to um, posture our mind. And I want to give you four of these ways that we're going to posture our minds is the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says this, Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Just think about that for a second. We have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is a consequential gift of our relationship with him. So this is important to say the mind of Christ is not something I'm going to give you like these four things and that means you have the mind of Christ. Paul says we have it in the resource of our relationship with him. It's just about discovering his mind in fellowship with him. It's about discovering how the posture in which he would think through things. Again, Christianity is not an idea. We're not talking about good ideas versus bad ideas, Christian ideas versus uh, secular ideas. We're talking about the gospel and the way the gospel saturates our minds and leads us to think differently into these spaces. I read you 1 Corinthians 2. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be sitting in 1 Corinthians 1 for quite a little bit. And so I'll have it on the screen. But if you've got a Bible or your phone that you want to throw open to 1 Corinthians 1, I'm going to read you a section that will launch us into this a little bit easier that precedes that scripture I just read you. We have the mind of Christ. Before that, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, we have these words. For the word of the cross... The crucifixion is folly. Now, that's a very old-timey word. But um, looking at the Greek, I, I have studied this passage so much. One of the ways I might translate it, if I'd be so bold, is idiotic. The word of the cross is idiotic to those that are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power 
power of God. So for some people, they're going to see the cross and think it's stupid. In fact, I, someone said uh, earlier today, they're like, spicy Chris shows up in your book sometimes. Uh, and what they meant is one of my chapter titles is Christianity is Stupid. And it's trying to play on words with this text, which says we have to be comfortable with knowing that some people will see Christianity as idiotic and as stupid and as making no sense. That is the word of the cross. It is foolishness at some level. And so as we dive into this, my first point is this first mindset is a secure and transcendent view of the gospel. A secure and transcendent view of the gospel. Each mindset, I'm going to give you a metaphor because I think metaphors always help me when I think through concepts. A secure and transcendent view of the gospel. Secure meaning comfortable, chill, not anxious, like Mark Sayers says, a non-anxious presence in this world. A secure and transcendent, again, above the ideologies, a secure and transcendent view of the gospel. If we have that mindset, you will think through so much of life much differently. And the metaphor I'm giving you is Christ is seated. Okay, just hold on to that a little bit. Hold on to that. All right, back to 1 Corinthians. Foolishness, but to those who are uh, being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise, Paul asks? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Just hang on to that for a second. The world did not know God through, the Greek word there is Sophia, through wisdom and philosophy, philosophical thinking. The gospel is not an ascent of brilliant spiritual ideas where we get to God at the top. Christianity is the descent of the triune God into the Son of God. So the world didn't know God through wisdom. It pleased God then through foolishness, through folly, through idiocy of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdoms. By the way, two opposing ideological camps of the first century, Judaism and the Greeks, the Hellenists. There was kind of these two opposing, and there was happening at that time Hellenistic Judaism, meaning there was a blend of philosophy and Judaism happening at the time. Just like today, there's a blend of like ideological Christianity out there, right? And Paul is saying to the Jew who's demanding a sign and the Greek who's seeking the Sophia, the wisdom, but we don't do either of those things. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, which is actually a stumbling block. Here's a cool Greek word. Scandalon is the Greek word. What does that sound like to you? Scandal. Scandal. Yeah, yeah. A stumbling block, a scandal to the Jews and complete foolishness to Gentiles, to non-Jews. So to the Jew and the non-Jew, it's either a scandal or it's stupid. And Paul says, but to those who are called on both sides of the extremes of the ideologies, Jew and Gentile, the Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not even in existence, to bring to nothing the things that are. And these are superior claims. And if you are not a Christian, these might, it might sound shocking, but look at this. Why did God do this? Why did God place the superiority of the cross as the foolishness that it is to so many people, that it might be the powerful word that shames both sides of the ideological spectrum. Why did he do this? Verse 29. Look at that. Why did he do it? Not a rhetorical question. So that no human can boast. That no human can boast in the presence of God. Yeah. This is great news for people like me who like ideas. I will never bring an idea to God that's impressive. Instead, I live in light of that cross. It's kind of why ancient art and architecture was designed the way it was designed. I grew up around the Catholic Church. They really do architecture well. You walk into those buildings and you feel tiny. You feel insignificant. You feel foolish. You feel kind of foolish in light of the great cathedrals because it's trying to point to this transcendent word that we might go into the presence of God and never boast. Never boast. And because of him, you and me, we're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. He became to us wisdom, not us getting wise so that we could get to God, but God becoming foolish so that he could become wise to us. Profound. This stuff is insane. It's no wonder that it's called foolishness. The wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So he, said, he quotes the Old Testament to close it, right? So as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in this. <laughs> boast in the Lord. You know, that's a quote from Jeremiah where in Jeremiah he says, let the person who boasts in this, uh, boast in this, that he knows me. Not that he knows great things, but that he knows me, my heart, my character. The gospel, you guys, this passage shows the transcendence of it in light of cultural ideologies. And I gave you this metaphor of Christ seated. Why did I do that? Because in the New Testament, in Colossians that you're going to read, and I don't want to go too far into this because your pastors are going to take you well into this, Colossians 3.1 says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Don't play on the ideological spectrum because Christ won't be there. Christ is seated. Look it. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds then on the security and the transcendence of the things that are above not on the things that are on earth, because, this is a big Colossians thing, you're a dead person. You died to those things. And your life right now, if you're a Christian, your life is hidden with God. How good, how good of news is that, by the way? Can I just do a quick aside? This is not a part of the talk. But I find in Christian and non-Christian, just American thinking right now, 
there's some self we have to go look for inside. I got to go find myself. I got to know myself, you know. There's some wisdom. I love, like, great self-awareness. I was talking to one of your pastors about the Enneagram. I like that as a tool to help us through those things. But my goodness, there is no self that you need to go look for. It's hidden with Christ. The longer you contemplate Christ and his effect on your life, will bring yourself out. That's what Jesus says. To know yourself is to lose it. Lose yourself. In your humility, when you think less of yourself, suddenly yourself comes into knowledge. Uh, you don't got to go looking for it. Your life is hidden with Christ on high. Um, what great news. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And he's seated. You know, in Hebrews, Hebrews has this metaphor nailed down. Hebrews 1.3, Hebrews 10.12. After making purifications for sin, Hebrews 1.3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. Hebrews 10, 12 says, Christ, when Christ offered himself as the single sacrifice, he sat down. Now, why am I telling you this? I just think it's a helpful metaphor when we're thinking about the madness of our world. If you and I are relating to Jesus, he's the person, he's the work, he's the author and finisher of our faith, and he's seated, why are we anxious? <laughs> uh, in ancient world, a king that was in battle would be off of his throne and engaging in warfare and engaging in strategy for warfare. But when the time was at peace, the king would sit. Uh, Christ is seated. And sometimes I just think about that to remind myself of all the anxieties that I carry, whether they be cultural or they just be personal that Christ is seated. You know Dallas Willard, the great theologian and philosopher, somebody asked him in a Q&A one time, can you describe God in one word? And he said, relaxed. I thought it was a clever response. When we busy ourselves outside of the mind of Christ, we are busying with thinking of what we might accomplish, the babel we might build. Here's a great author, Dr. Kato, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. He wrote a commentary on Jeremiah, which is all about exile, kind of what I was alluding to today. And he says that ideology and idolatry, this is a pastor and a theologian in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We got to Zoom with him on something. He's an amazing man. He says, they always want to compel us to bow down to the work of our own hands, to knowledge and might to our achievement, to our wealth, to our ethnic group, and to our family. Why? So we might worship them. This is, the true, this is true not only for a nation, but for society, any ethnic group, any institution, any individual. Why did Christ come the way he came? Why did he die the way that he died? So that no one would boast. And Dr. Cato is saying, that's what ideology and idolatry is always leading us towards. Ego, boasting, power grabbing. And a transcendent and secure view of the gospel says Christ is seated. Christ is enthroned. Therefore, I can live and die in peace. Which is a great reference. You know, when you think about, by the way, if you know anything about the, the Congo, Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, Dr. Kato has hid in bushes for his life. He has hid from assassination attempts. Uh, 
He is not safe. Uh, and yet he's reflecting on Jeremiah and saying, we have to work away from bowing down to the work of our hands. That's a man who has the mind of Christ, who says, let persecution come. Uh, that's the witness of the global church. Secondly, is a robust theology of the kingdom. I'm going to go very quickly through this because I, I really spent a lot of time on this today. But I just want to remind you of John 18. The key metaphor is living as a foreigner. A robust theology of the kingdom, living as a foreigner. I gave examples in my sermon this morning, so I'm not going to go into it. But I'm just going to show you John 18 to remind you that when Jesus Christ was, ass was assaulted by his own nation, the Jewish people, and was brought before the nation he was, uh, uh, you know, in exile in, basically, under captivity, which was the Roman occupation of Israel and of the ancient world of the time, and was brought to the local political leader. He had this conversation near his crucifixion. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, verse 34, do you say this of your own accord, or do others say this it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not deliver, be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. I'll just stop there. Jesus is about to be crucified, and he's like, this battle that we're caught in between the Jews that have handed you over to me and you, it's, I'm actually working on a different level. <laughs> I'm in a different space. My kingdom is not of this world. My disciples would be fighting on my behalf. But when they tried to fight on my behalf, I told them not to. You know, Peter cuts off the ear. What does Jesus say? If you live by the sword, you will die by it. This is not our battle. Our battle is not here. Russell Moore wrote um, a great op-ed in Christianity Today last year, commenting on this passage, and he says, the resurrection and ascension were not the undoing of the crucifixion. Some of us think about that. Oh, Good Friday, bad. Sunday, super good. Because the crucifixion was kind of a bummer, we have the resurrection, and that kind of undid it. No, 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 no. They were instead a continuation, I think I have this quote, a continuation of what Jesus pronounced to be a triumph through defeat, a power through weakness. As New Testament scholar uh, Richard Hayes once noted, after the resurrection, Jesus did not appear to Pilate or to Caesar or to Herod. Have you ever noticed that? When Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't go back to the nation players. He didn't go back to Pilate. He didn't go to Caesar. He didn't go to Herod. All people we heard about in the gospel narratives, they become a footnote. There's just something going on with Rome that's almost incidental to the real story. To do so, to, to, to go to Pilate and to Herod, to do so would have been to vindicate himself, to win an argument rather than to save the world. To win an argument rather than to save the world. Jesus came not to win an argument, not to vindicate himself even, but to show the world and to save the world that he, remember in Acts 1-3, it says he presented himself alive. That's what he came to do. He came to present himself alive. That's because Jesus's kingdom, Russell Moore goes on to say, would advance not through resentment and grievance, 
oh, why did you kill Jesus? But through those who bear witness to Jesus' sincerity and truth, even at the loss of their own lives. Conquering like that, oh, you guys went through Revelation last year, right? Conquering like this, Revelation 12, 11, through the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony, that is actually winning. Especially when the one who, see, uh, who, who sees it is converted, right? Uh, a robust theology of the kingdom means living as a foreigner, means living in a different state and knowing we live in a different state. I think I have a quote from um, Wang Yi, who is a house church pastor in China, um, commenting on John 18. He's currently in prison, and Google him. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal witness to the work of Jesus. John 18, the passage I just read you, shows that the kingdom of Christ is higher than any nation on, nations on earth. It also shows that before the judgment day arrives, the kingdom of Christ will refrain from the use of coercion or forceful action to enforce its rule on this world. Rather, through great love and mercy, it allows the political powers of this world to exercise the powers of the sword. Go ahead and exercise the powers of the sword. We, we worship a risen Lord. He got up from the grave. I think I will too. Now, that's easy for me to say. Wang Yi is sitting in a prison in China, and he wrote those words. Christians, might we heed those words? We live in a different kingdom. The third, an expansive view of the biblical narrative. An expansive view of the biblical narrative. Key metaphor is out-narrating out narrating these are habits of minds if we have these mindsets from the global church from the historic church maybe we could have the mind of christ an expansive view of the biblical narrative is the story of scripture from genesis to revelation is larger than any cultural story the master of this was saint augustine who wrote the city of god in the 300s around the time of the roman kind of conversion to Christianity, it was Augustine, literally, the, I, I believe, the greatest mind in Christian history. Uh, he was an African bishop uh, from North Africa, and he wrote about Roman, Rome's power and about its limits. And what he does in the city of God, here's a scholar on Augustine, Christopher Walken, he says this, in the city of God, Augustine does not merely explain the Bible to Roman culture. He explains Roman culture within the framework of the biblical story. What's the difference? I think a lot of times Christians want to try to explain the Bible to Americans and to American culture. It's like we're trying to, again, fight these secular ideas with Christian ideas. And we're trying to explain the Bible to people in America. But really, I think a better mindset is viewing the American story as this small, tiny piece of a larger story that the Bible talks about. The biblical narrative is usually described between four and five words, creation, fall, rebellion, redemption, and new creation. That these acts of, of God over time should always be in the mind of every Christian living in a particular nation's story. The story of America, largely depressing, becoming increasingly so, as we learn more about it, right? The story of America 
sometimes is, is tried to, we're trying to use that story or this nation's story in a way that's trying to, again, baptize it into Christianity. But the American story is not the church's story. The church's story is the biblical narrative that we come from somewhere different, creation, and we're headed somewhere new, eschatological reality, new creation. John Milbank, he says that the early Christians, the Christians of the first 300, 400 years, they were masters at out-narrating their cultural rivals. That's where I get that term. So the kingdom of God and the story of the Bible, it's not a more gripping narrative or like a better story. Sometimes it's really, you got to slog through some of these chapters. It's like, wow, there's a lot of violence in here. It's not that it's a better story or a more gripping narrative. Rather, the early Christians showed that the Bible was just the largest story. It was the biggest and most expansive story we have. And it apprehends and engulfs all the tiny cultural narratives we supply for ourselves. So all the little narratives we play about our own identity and our own history and our own technology and our own obsessions, they all fit inside the larger story of Christianity. The secular beginning is accidental and inconsequential. It's like, uh, maybe we got here through the Big Bang, but it doesn't really matter. The Christian creation account, the biblical narrative, says that creation was intentional and consequential. The way that this world was created matters. And we have something to say about the ontology, about the ways in which life has been formed and meaning. There's meaning in the creation account. The secular end, the world, the end is uncertain and cataclysmic. Well, it might be um, climate change or it might be political upheaval or nuclear war. We don't know what will happen, but it'll end badly. The Christian eschatological hope is certain and redemptive. Christ will come again and restore all things. It's just a larger story. It's just something that pulls back the purview on cultural narratives. And we Christians have the mindset to have the assurance that the biblical story is the real story about the world, where it comes from, where is it going. We didn't create it. We didn't write this story. We're not even making it happen. We simply are participating and witnessing God working his story out in the world. And the early Christians were out narrating the Romans and just saying, Rome is falling, Christ is risen. That is an out narration of the cultural story. And finally, a cruciform way of living. A cruciform way of living. Let me repeat them because I know there's type A note takers that are mad right now. Um, a secure and transcendent view of the gospel. The key metaphor, Christ is seated. Non-anxious presence. A robust theology of the kingdom. We're living as foreigners. This is not our world. We're not fighting the same battles. An expansive view of the biblical narrative. Our story out-narrates the other stories, out-narrating. And finally, a cruciform way of living. And the key metaphor is dying to live. If you are in 1 Corinthians, go to the right over to Philippians. Because here's another time Paul talks about the mind of Christ. I've read you a few passages tonight where Paul's talking about the mind. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let's start in verse 5. I won't have this on the screen, so if you pull it up on your Bible. Um, Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, Park Hill. Have this mind. 
And look at what he says. It's actually yours in Christ Jesus. Again, we're not philosophically ascending to this mind like Gnosticism. This is a gift. When you know Jesus Christ, this mindset is yours. Look at what he says. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being, hum and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is our mindset. Our mindset. Jesus, uh, Paul says, have this mind. Jesus was God and didn't consider that something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And so his followers will do the same. I don't know if I have this quote from uh, Jin Tianming, who's another pastor in China. The house church movement in China, something to look into. Uh, it will need, it will, need to, uh, will need to have its legal identity, identity affirmed eventually, but they're not a legal gathering, so they're persecuted. But the key is that we can only accomplish this through the way of the cross. The true church is not afraid of being homeless. The true church is afraid of being spineless. Whoo, that deserves one of those. Christ was hung on the cross in the air. This demonstrates that the world has no place for Christ. However, Jesus conquered the world and drew the world to God. Our brothers and sisters interpret Philippians 2 that way. Yes, we'll have our legal identity, but it's not going to come through politicking. Our legal identity may come, but the way it has to come is through the cross. So let the sword come, let the cross come. Christ has come in the cross, and so he'll meet us there. It's remarkable. An early letter to, uh, in the mid-2nd century, the epistle of uh, Diognetus, this is a report of early Christians. Do you not see how they are thrown to wild animals to make them deny the Lord and how they are not vanquished? In other words, they don't capitulate. Uh, these, you know, the, the Roman Colosseum was the place where Christians were persecuted and they were thrown to wild animals. Do you not see that the more they are punished, the more they increase? The early church grew not primarily because the content of their ideas but by the demonstration of their character to lay down their lives. It's, Alan Kreider wrote a great book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And his whole argument is that, the patient ferment of the early church. They knew the way of the cross would lead them to victory. They knew that the way of the cross was the way to grow the church. It wasn't going to happen through the content of their material ideas. It was going to come through the demonstration of their Christ-like uh, behavior, their character which was for many of them to die. And so two key words I want to leave you with, and then we'll go to the questions. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll have Evan come up here in a second. But just two key words, witness and participation. When we have this mindset, I think that the mind of Christ witnesses to Jesus and participates in Jesus' work. What do I mean by that? Witness means that the display of our lives 
may be the most important preaching and apologetic that we have for this world, right? Um, what do I mean by that? I think in our culture today, there's a few things you can do that will witness to the gospel of you laying your life down. Um, a couple that come to mind are if we have a secure view of, the, of Christ and a transcendent view of the kingdom and the biblical story, everything I talked about, I do think we'll handle our money differently. And I think it's going to witness to people. Uh, we won't grab money and be greedy for it, but we'll be generous with it. And I've seen people in my own story, my own life pastorally, the, their decision-making looks foolish. It looks foolish, but they're going through the cruciform way of living a generous life. Some of you are living in great purity right now. In a sexualized culture, purity will witness to the gospel because you're saying in a world that says the only way to live a fulfilled life is to live a fulfilled sexual life, you say in rebuke to that, the way to a fulfilled life is living a fulfilled life in Christ Jesus. Same with finances. Same with our behavior online. So many things can witness to things. Ellen Davis is an Old Testament scholar. She says, you know, the prophets, they did speak truth to power. They spoke truth to power, which we always think, oh, that's prophetic, speaking truth to power. But she says they also spoke power to the truth. They, spoke, they didn't just speak truth to power. They spoke power to the truth. What does she mean? They lived lives that embodied the message they gave. Hosea, Jeremiah. They did foolish, ridiculous acts to witness and reflect some greater thing that was going on. And I think that's the work we have ahead of us as Christians. And participation. We jump in on the work that God has begun and will complete in this world. And so we're unabashedly connecting to two things that are foolish to one end of the ideological spectrum. Unabashedly committed to justice, unabashedly committed to living moral and ethical lives in a morally repugnant world. Here's the final quote for the night from that same epistle, Diognetus, that's talking about early Christians in the mid-second century. They inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities, the Christians do. Here's what we know about them in the, early, in the early centuries. According to the lot assigned to each, some were barbarians in the countryside and pagan countries, some were enlightened Greek people. They were all over the ideological spectrum. They live in their respected countries, but only as resident aliens. They participate, there's that word, in all things as citizens, and they endure all things as foreigners. They share their meals, but not their sexual partners. It was so confusing to the, to the Romans. It was confusing to the Greeks and to the barbarians how these people could participate in the life of citizenship but act distance from it. Like, I live in San Diego, but I have a distance from it because my citizenship is somewhere else. And I'll eat with you, but I won't go to bed with you. Yeah. I mean, this was the participatory life that people lived. And they engaged with the world in some of our greatest Mentors in this that I mentioned, living in the Congo or living in China or living in the third and second century, they lived this way. And so perhaps if we have a mind of Christ, we might adopt similar behaviors and stuff. Evan, how are we doing? Okay. There we are. All right. All right. We had a great little conversation at our table in the back. I hope, hope those discussions were fruitful. Maybe there were some questions that came up 
that you'd like to ask Chris, now's the time. The first question up on the screen is, when are you coming back? You name it. I'm, I love this community. This is so fun. This is so fun. It's up to you. It's up to you and your leadership team. Yeah. Well, look, at that, look at that second question. Second question, what... <laughs> These are very appropriate... Very appropriate, timely questions. Uh, our pastor of community formation, Aaliyah Persley, asked... <laughs> no, I bet it's someone... Pretend, it's, it's Abner pretending to be Aaliyah. Asking, what dating app do you recommend? I tell people all the time, I'm the worst at advice for dating for anything. I've been married 12 and a half years. There wasn't Facebook when I got, I mean, barely Facebook when I got married, it feels like. Dude, I'm the wrong person to ask about dating and about dating apps. Wrong person. Well, then I'll delete that question. All right. Okay, this, this one has five votes. Um, if we're going for a way of thinking that transcends the polarized view... How do we live or present it in a way that doesn't come across oh. as arrogant? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so good. The, the short answer I have for that is that the very mind of Christ that we adopt upon meditating on him and his resurrection and his crucifixion, it does humble us. And so, in some ways, you haven't adopted the mind of Christ if you're holding to the superiority of the gospel without the humility of the gospel. That's my answer. So good. <laughs> so good. Um, so this is, yeah, this is the immediate question. From seeing the spectrum, yeah. um, you know, you, you playfully did the woke to MAGA spectrum, but then you presented Christianity not even, a, not even on the line. But we feel like we have to live on that line. We feel like there's people yeah. there, and we, we have to deal with life there, it seems, at least. So what does it mean to live a life above ideologies? Are we supposed to engage in the political, social, economic discussion or not? Yeah. So I had two ways to kind of close the talk. Maybe because of that question, I should have chose the other way, which was the faithful examples of people who have engaged in the political realm with the mind of Christ through participation and through witness. Um, and so for me, some of the best things to look at is just our brothers and sisters throughout history and throughout the globe who are currently doing that. That's why I tried to quote a little bit from people maybe you've never heard of before that I think you should read. They are engaged in in politics, um, but they're engaged in politics through the way of the cross. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. was extremely engaged in politics through the way of the cross. In fact, he said several times, and many of his closest friends, like, he knew he would be assassinated. You know, it's at, at some level he knew because while he was engaged with that battle, he was warring with it in a way in which would only lead to death. Um, Bonhoeffer was the same way. Another wonderful example. He was a political spy. He was arrested for the reasons of political engagement. Um, William Wilberforce, who was one of the architects and main visionaries of the abolitionist movement in the UK, was deeply engaged. He was in parliament. Um, he knew that it would lead to the loss of his life and the loss of many other lives because of the ways in which he battled. So my point is, the examples that we can look through through history, these are usually people that were martyred, mm. that did it right. Mm. Um, 
which is really hard for Americans to imagine. Mm -hmm. But I do think there is a way of the cross that engages with the political world, but it doesn't involve power grabbing. Um, I was just having a good discussion with somebody after the talk about the form of power that Christianity takes. Remember in Philippians 2 that we looked at earlier, it says that even though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, becoming human, and then becoming obedient to death. So then he was exalted in the name above every name. So the root of power in the Christian mind is in the incarnation, he became human, and in the crucifixion, he died in a death obedient to the cross. However we engage with politics will be through those two theological realities, an incarnation and a, and a death, a cruciform living. So I actually think that Christians, especially in America and maybe for the next season, I would love to see more of incarnational cross-bearing uh, things that are not um, vying for political power, but like our global brothers and sisters being willing to lay down our lives for it. I also mm. think, Evan and I, you, were, you and I were talking about this on our call in December. Um, prayer is a form of incarnational and cruciform behavior because mm -hmm. yeah. the world thinks it's foolish. Uh, we often think it's not doing anything. Yeah. But the faith and the sacrifice it takes, what's that quote who says that prayer doesn't lead to the greater work, but it is the great work? Can't remember yeah. who said that. Isn't that a great line? Prayer doesn't lead to the greater work, it is the great work. That always helps me because prayer always seems so hard corporately. It's like, dude, we gotta, okay, we all gotta pray together and we gotta gather people. But that is the kind of dying to self that might lead to political renewal or political. Also, here's, here's another thing. Christians should be very comfortable with political demise. Like Rome, that was, that was the, the early centuries of the church. Like they would see Rome collapse and it was not cataclysmic to them. Um, if American political structures falter, Christians should be the most at peace. <laughs> so that uh, it kind of plays into the, the next top question about privilege. So you're talking about prayer being the greater work. Meanwhile, there's political yeah. movement to be made in order for lives to sometimes be saved. So yes. uh, when you say prayer is a greater work, it does sound foolish when we have work to do 100%. and there's life to, so um, where does privilege come into this conversation? And um, obviously this is, I mean, I don't mean to answer anything, but the global church has something to say to that too. So like, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I, so I think, I, I'm not sure exactly what this person means, but my guess is that they're saying there are certain privileges we have to inaction, uh, maybe depending on who we are tonight and ethnic background, all that stuff, that privilege plays um, into inaction um, when it comes to choosing sides, meaning left or right, maybe? Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay, okay. One of the things that is important for me just as a white dude... Maybe not choosing sides. A not choosing sides. When, when do you think privilege plays a part in, well, I don't have to choose a side. How much privilege is involved Oh, in that? that makes a lot more sense. Yes. That was a little bit what I was talking about in 
the intro, there's a way, uh, go all the way to the left, go all the way to the right, go to the middle, or forget about it entirely. I kind of mentioned it super briefly, and I was like, I'm not arguing to forget about the ideological spectrums entirely. And that comes from, um, to answer this question, privilege has a ton to do with it. Because there is a mode in Christian living right now in America, which is like, we're just, and this is, maybe some of you grew up this way, we're just not going to talk about politics. And we're just not going to talk about issues that are even adjacent to politics. Um, except for marriage. Um, <laughs> uh, so... For me, the best thing that I can do as a privileged person is listen to the global and historic church like I was talking about. Because the global church shows me the theological things to which I need to stand upon. Mm. And I wonder, and also I would say um, fellowship with people who are materially poor. Because when you are in relationship with people who can't afford groceries and people who are struggling paycheck to paycheck, there's a reason Jesus Christ said you'll encounter me when you encounter people that are naked and in prison. Because your own privilege becomes not even secondary or tertiary, it becomes inconsequential to the saving of this person's life. And um, I think that as much as we encounter God in worship and prayer, one of the main ways he told us he, we would encounter him is in fellowship with poor people, people who are materially poor. He's like, when you do that to someone, to the least of these, you do that to me. So it's like, I'm looking for God, I'm trying to find God. Um, or I'm trying to just, I just wanna find God in prayer and just get out of all of this. Um, I've just found in my personal life being in fellowship with materially poor people is essential to my discipleship to Jesus and the complete deletion of privilege that crops up in my life every day. Um, I don't know. That's my best stab. That's a great question. Yeah. It's probably not best answered by a privileged white person, but yeah. It's good to, it's good to name that. Um, the next three questions are all basically the same. They're looking yeah. for concrete habits. Yeah. Like action items. Yeah rule of life stuff, concrete examples of how to live in this posture. Yeah, stuff I told you you would not get tonight, uh, but I'll give it to you in the Q&A. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, one of the things I'm, temp I'm careful of, just so you know, just as a pastor, is overly prescriptive teaching, um, where it gets into the grainy details, because I think if we have some of the things I've taught you today and that I'm learning, I think all of us will do the right thing. Um, I once heard somebody say, um, my goal in preaching is after I preach, let's say it's John 1, my hope is that after preaching, you don't hear from me what to do, but you've heard from the word and the spirit and you'll do the right thing when the thing comes. Mm. So that's just a little about me. And that's probably my weakness, by the way, as a preacher. Many people critique that sometimes. It's like, it's not as practical. Here are a few things, though, since it was asked in a question. I'll give you a few things that I do think are prescriptive and important. I really do think um, to get together in a small group, this is a Tim Mackey thing, to get together in a small group of people. You guys have communities here? To get in together with a small group of people and reading scripture out loud, mm. read it out loud. Don't be like, read this before group and come. And then you never read it. Read it out loud in the group. That's how the scriptures was meant to be pre presented in a small group of people. 
and pray over the understanding of that scripture, I know that sounds like the biggest pastor answer, but it will change your life. It will change your life to be with somebody once a week for six years, seven years, eight years, ten years, and to pray for each other and read scripture out loud. It will change your life. I think that that changes your mind. I think your brain chemistry changes when you do that. I think when you serve your neighbors, and what I mean by serve is disadvantage yourself so that they might be advantaged, changes your brain chemistry. I think that it does. Uh, those of us who have become parents have seen the window into how self-giving is, is a crucible that uh, refines your life and changes your life. These are very simple things, but I make them simple because I think it's some of the things you guys as a community are being led into through bread and through your community life and through worship. And I actually think there's research that shows it changes your brain. Um, it just changes how you think about politics and stuff. I remember this woman in my church back in the Bay Area who after being in a community group for a year and reading scripture and just saturating herself in Jesus, she was like, you know, I used to see um, like when I was reading my phone and Twitter and Instagram, I'd just be seeing blue, 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 blue. And what she means by that is she was a liberal. She was a Democrat. She was just like seeing her own ideologies in front of her screen. And she's like, you know, now that I'm a Christian, I just see a lot of emptiness on my phone. What happened? What happened to that woman? Her mind changed because of participation in the community and service to the community. It's a pastor's answer, but you invited a pastor here, so. Yes, we did. Um, so maybe you can lead us, pastor us, through yeah. what out-narrating looks like. Yeah. Like, how do Good. we out-narrate? Good. And I like, I like the way, the personal story for how out-narrating looks when you, when you live it out. Yeah, I've, okay. So, um, I'll tell you, when I moved to the Bay Area, um, it became apparent. I moved from Portland to the Bay Area. Now I'm back in Portland, but I was there for seven years. And when I went there, uh, it just became really clear how isolated I had become from my neighbors. Like, because I moved to this new place, I didn't know anybody. And I moved, we moved to this apartment, and nobody knew each other on the floor, and everybody seemed totally cool with that. And um, I don't know. It seems like neighboring is a thing that is just, we don't do anymore because we're suspicious of each other and we all have ring doorbells that make us know when certain people approach our house and that they're suspicious or whatever. And um, I guess what God really convicted me of was to love your neighbor is to really love the person right next door to you, okay? Mm -hmm. So I went on a journey while I was in the Bay Area of intentionally getting to know my neighbors. And what I learned is that um, it is a lot harder than you, you know, preach um, because your neighbors usually are annoying. Um, and they're often very different from you. And um, when I moved into the second place in the Bay Area, my wife and I just doubled down on neighbor life. And um, this neighbor of mine, Keith, uh, he, um, we got to know each other over the years. And one day, he came to me, and he said, um, you know, I, I, this was like six months or eight months into our relationship. He says, you know, I, I realize I've never asked you what you do. And I was like, oh boy, here we go. And I was like, well, strangely, I'm a pastor. And he said, wow, that makes perfect sense. And I was like, ooh. 
because I thought he was going to be like, you're super judgmental and you always talk about things I'm leaving out on my porch. Um, but he said about my wife, <laughs> so not about me. Um, but he was like, it makes a lot of sense. He goes, your wife is, she was at Stanford in uh, residency, high achieving, high place, and amazingly smart woman. And he said, you know, she's the most grounded person I've ever encountered. And it was funny, I was like, man, I've been married to her for 10 years and I think the exact same thing. Okay, what do I mean by that? I was saying that in knowing the biblical story, uh, I borrowed from Mark Sayers that line, the non-anxious presence. A practical example of that from my wife, not from my anxious life, but from my wife's life, is to live in light of that story so that people are shocked by it. Um, and I think that's one reason I deeply admire my wife is she is in high intense environments and brings peace and stability. And one of the ways we out narrate is through that character demonstration that we're living in another story in another timeline. And so we're not living in capitalism's timeline and we're not living in um, America's timeline. We're living in the peace of God and his timeline for this world, which is he will come and he will return. Um, and I think that's really important with the way we react to um, the news also. I would give that as an also a, 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 a primary way in which we can witness to the world. I thought the way you guys led today was beautiful. Beautiful. Because I entered into that and was able to grieve and not lose hope. Mm. And I think like that's out narrating. Mm. Because the secular is to grieve and despair. And fake Christianity is to pretend it didn't happen or Jesus will make it all better. Mm, mm. And true out narrating says, we are in deep grief, but the story is not over and here's where it heads. And it's framing, it's a larger frame. Yeah. The news cycle isn't the story. Yeah. It's set, we're just, again, I'm, it's not a more gripping story, it's just a larger story that we set the news in the context of. Yeah. I think that out narrates. Yeah. Yeah. And just so you guys know, I'm ticking off these questions. When I sense that he's answering multiple, though, I'll just delete multiple because I think he's nailing so many of this, at, so, so many of these at different in, in different angles. Um, but I, I love I love that spineless quote that you threw down. Uh, like the that was one of those I read it in that book, and I just put the book down. I was just like, Yeah, what do I do with that? Yeah, it's what was it? Where Christians aren't afraid of being homeless. Yeah. Uh, but we are afraid of being spineless. Yeah. So um, what does it look like to actively participate in a local community spinelessly? <laughs> yeah, in a spineless way. So I think just to be clear, what the quote from that pastor in China was saying was that, um, yeah, what the church should be aware of is homelessness is not a big deal we've been in exile before um it's okay you know the church in china is like we don't need legal authority to tell us we're a legit community christ has told us we're a legit community so the author was saying just to clarify the quote that uh we we aren't in need of a home we have one in the kingdom um but we should be aware of being spineless in the way of like giving way. So I don't think we're supposed to live spinelessly. Yeah. 
I think, yes. And when you say homeless, you're not, you're not speaking of literal people experiencing homelessness. Not houselessness. Just, just to be clear. Yeah, thank you're, you. You're, 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 you're meaning like we're politically homeless. Politically homeless and, yeah, in this, the church in China, the, the context, think about that. Yeah, they, they don't have representation, legal representation of their community yeah. or protection from the yeah. government. Yeah. 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 Um, so within the church, this question got a lot of votes just in the last minute. Okay. Uh, most Christians, they believe their view of Scripture is accurate oh. and often come to vastly different yeah. uh, cultural yes. places uh, on the spectrum. How do, yep. you, how do you seek unity in those moments? The million-dollar question that could take an, another house of learning uh, all on this. Again, I would start with the historic and the global church to contextualize our interpretation of scripture. So if your view of scripture only works in privileged communities in America, I don't know if it's a good interpretation of this book we're reading. Um, The gospel flourishes historically in oppressed countries. And it's doing that today, you know? Religion is on the decline in America. Yeah. It's on the rise in oppressed countries. So I would start with that. Let's look at our interpretation and look at the historical interpretation and look at the way the global church is interpreting this passage because that might help us seek unity. Right. Because unity is not two white guys on the West Coast agreeing. Right. It's the global church and the historic church, the church, the Christian church that we have received. So... Yeah, pinging off that, um, this question came in recently, so I put it to the top. Super relevant. You're talking about the global church. How do we know what the global church is without going to seminary and <laughs> yeah. being, being Chris Nye on his doctorate work at Duke? No, or whatever, like. it's a great question. I would give you two responses. Be a part of Park Hill because your pastors are steeped in this kind of theology. And so you're, follow your leaders. Your leaders are there to read Augustine when you can't. But... Might I say, um, most people in my churches read one to two books a year. You know, it's not a lot of people read a lot. I would say, of your one to two books you read this year, could you read something from the global church or from the historic book? Just one, from the historic church, just one book? Because I actually don't think it takes you, you don't need to read hours of Augustine. You, You don't. Um, and you can read, I'll give you one, one of each to, to, to consider reading. One is the book On the Incarnation. Mm. This is by Irenaeus. It's old, 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 old. Some of the first Christian writing. It's this big. There's a book of modern translation from St. Vladimir's Press. Our beautiful Orthodox brothers and sisters have translated into English into a readable format. It's probably 80 pages. You could read it very shortly. And that would give you just a window into it. Um, so that's one from the historic. And from the global, I would look at Faithful Disobedience by Wang Yi. Um, that book is a collection, actually, of house church leaders. It just came out. It was a, a beast to get published. Um, it was so hard to get published. And I think if you read just a few chapters of that, you don't even need to read the whole book. You would be brought to humility and to respect and response um, to a different light on our faith, you know, that might help. So put yourself under leadership 
that does the work for you and teaches you well, like Park Hill does, and then just do a little bit of the work. It will go a long way. It's very helpful. Uh, yeah, it is, it is easier to, to read church history than you think, than I think. It, I, I'm, yeah. I, I even still, I have to remind myself, oh, it's right there if I want. Well, and you know what I always think, by the way, real fast on that? Y'all are reading Paul. Yeah. Do you know that? <laughs> when you read this, you're reading ancient literature from a person that was so smart. That is so confusing. We've been arguing about what he said for 2,000 years. You've been reading Paul. You can read Irenaeus. You can read Augustine's Confessions. You really can't. You read Romans. That's harder than Irenaeus, trust me. So I think we can hone it in onto individual stuff. There were several questions that came in uh, on the comment you made that was not part of your talk on the self. So that one prompted several questions. So can you expand on why the search for self has no place within Christianity? And then connect, connect that to the next question. American culture says to constantly prepare to take care of self through financial investment, future planning. And so this one comes from another, another side. That's not dying to live, that's saving to live longer or whatever. Um, so maybe you can speak to just the self-care culture. Yeah. Self-care culture. That how, how far can you go in that before it, it maybe becomes too, too much? Yes. I'm going to steal here. I just pulled up some notes that were so helpful for me from a Tim Keller lecture at Wheaton. Looking for your identity within is incoherent, unstable, illusory, crushing, and excluding. Just really fast, I'll give you this lecture. <laughs> It's incoherent. You actually don't know what you want and you don't know your desires because they're discordant within each, it, itself. So to look within, there's days you feel like loving people and there's days you don't feel like loving people. There's days you feel like loving your wife. There's days you don't feel like loving your wife. There's days you feel like loving your neighbor and that you don't. It is incoherent. So the very source to look in yourself is unstable and incoherent. And uh, yeah, secondly, unstable. You change all the time. I was just talking to Greg about this over lunch, but we were talking about 15 years ago, I look back on Chris Nye and I go, what an idiot. Well, guess what? In 15 years, what am I gonna think about myself right now? It means I'm currently foolish and an idiot. It's kind of freeing. But it also reflects that the, the self, the project of the self, it's unstable because you are constantly changing all the time. So to constantly go into yourself is not the place to find your identity. And it's illusory. This is who I am doesn't tell anybody actually who you are. I've found this to be so true in pastoral ministry. People come to your office and they say, you know, Chris, I have, I have thick skin. They'll say something like that, some projection of who they are. But then the most minor thing I say to them sets them off. So is it, is it true because you said it? Or is it actually not the way people experience you? We've all been there before. I've embarrassed myself before where I've been in a community group. I remember this, oh my gosh, I was 19 years old. And I said to this community group, it's so embarrassing to say, but I said, you know, I don't really struggle with anger and the room got quiet. <laughs> Am I the best source to understand myself when I constantly misrepresent myself? It's illusory, right? It's crushing, there's huge pressure. That's just massive pressure to say that you are the source to find your identity in you. You gotta go do it. It's crushing weight. You know how many college students kill themselves because of that? I mean, it's, this is an epidemic in this society that we're telling people to find mm. themselves and then they can't and they are depressed. 
I mean, it's, it's an awful cultural pressure, and it's excluding because any identity that is achieved and not received, it leads to pride. I'm an Enneagram 3, and I'm a master at achieving things because that's my great stupid cross to bear is that I think that if I achieve something, I'll be worth something. But that's not the gospel. Mm. The gospel corrects that three in me and goes, the things you achieve are fine, but that's not the reason God loves you. So all of that is Tim Keller, and I stole that all, but how brilliant is that? Um, and I just pass it on to you to say the project of the self is not the project of Christianity. Your self is found in Christ, hidden, hidden in Christ. Come on. And when you find Christ, you find yourself. And, and it's strange how that happens. And again, I'm all about the ways in which we can find self-awareness and personality tests, and those things are all very helpful. But if they're not set inside the context of discipleship, they can become self-serving. So, yeah. Chris, can't thank you enough for coming and being with our community all day. This is a blast. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for guys. Coming. Um, yeah, I'm just going to. This question, this is the only question to be submitted twice. Uh, do you have any relation to Bill Nye? Bill Nye, the science guy. No, I don't. All right, all right. Case closed. <laughs> there is a vague similarity physically as well. But, um, so, yeah, well, you guys, let's, let's just bless, let's bless Chris with a prayer, send him back to Portland, just with God's speed and his anointing on his life, and Lord, thank you so much for this man and his wife and kid, thank you for bringing them down to San Diego for our sake, for your glory, I pray that you would bless Chris. Uh, with more and more just timely thoughts to enrich the life of your followers. Continue to speak through him. Uh, continue to awaken his mind as he roots his mind in Christ. Uh, may, he, may he just see over the horizon. He's, I just sense he's one of those voices like a Mark Sayers who, who, who can just kind of see over the horizon and put thoughts into articulated words that that the rest of us can say, oh yeah, I, I, I resonate with this. I see God doing that too. So Lord, would you continue to fill his sails with the power of your spirit for such a time as this. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 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 You guys, thank you for showing up for the first House of Learning.